0: Welcome to The Business of Art, a new podcast which engages with influential art world players. My name's David Bellingham, and I'm Programme Director at the MA Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art London. My guest today is Craig Brown, and Craig is Head of Fair Development and Exhibitors at Masterpiece London, the Summer Art Fair born in 2010 as a replacement for the Grosvenor House Art and Antiques Fair, which have been running since 1934. Craig studied culture and art at the University of South Africa and worked as co-director of Gallery on the Square, Johannesburg, between 1999 and 2010, when he moved to London to study for the master's degree in art business at Sutherford Institute four years. He was in sales and marketing at London Art Fair before working for the Hong Kong-based Art Central between 2016 and 2017. This included the role of gallery development director at Art 16 London Art Fair. He then moved to the art magazine Apollo as business development director before joining Masterpiece in 2019. So Craig, can you start by telling me what your favourite city is?
1: Uh, So. I think I think for me, um, it's probably hands down, and I, and I qualify this probably as a as a as a place that I would really love to live in, um, a city I'd love to live in. Um, that would have to say it, it would be New York, um, and and I think that's that's probably because it, of all the places I've visited, it's it's one of the places that that has met all my expectations, um, and and it's just it doesn't disappoint, does it? In terms of from its grittiness to, to its glamour. Um, I just, I love it as a city. I really do.
0: What, what kind of places would you head for if you only had like two days? Wow.
1: Well, um, I'd probably, certainly the, the museums, um, they always have some fantastic shows, um, uh, at the Met and at, at the Guggenheim. So certainly do that. Um, I love Brooklyn. Um, so I've spent a lot of time, um, when I've been in New York, um, just sort of hanging out with friends and, yeah. and, um, yeah, there's Brooklyn's a great part of the part of the city, um, and and I love Chelsea. Um, yeah, it's um, I just I love being on the streets of New York. I think it's it's one of the most inspiring places. It um, is great. It, it, it kind of does it. It kind of reminds me, although it
0: looks very different, it's not dissimilar to London in terms of the the localness of the. Where you go in a pub and people are very friendly and you can get chatting to people. Uh, exactly. It's a very friendly place on on many levels, I think. Yeah.
1: Yes, and I, I think it, there are there are some sort of similarities with London. It's quite a multi multicultural sort of melting pot in terms of the city. Um, it's just it's just on a sort of grander scale, isn't it? It's just so much bigger and 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 everything is so much taller. <laughs>
0: I I remember just one thing when I first went there, I was kind of disappointed that I wasn't it wasn't coming up to my expectations from the movies I've seen, because I think we're all very influenced before we go to New York by the the films. Yeah. (laughs) We think it's going to be like that like Elf or or whatever. (laughs) And, um, And and I was disappointed that I wasn't speaking to any New Yorkers. So one day I asked this guy, oh, where where would I go to meet? People from New York. And he said, "I'll oh, go to the jazz clubs in Greenwich Village. So I did that. And 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 he was absolutely right. I bumped into and befriended quite a few people over a couple of evenings just by visiting Greenwich Village and the clubs and so on.
1: Yeah. And I know you're talking about so people that are sort of born and bred in New York. I think yeah, that's quite yeah. rare, basically.
0: Because, because basically, New York is like London. It's very multicultural, yeah, it is. which is great. Right. So it's just yeah. that it kind of you think, where are the New York people? Good. You know, yeah. and I, yeah, I have so. students sometimes saying, I didn't come here to be with other Americans. <laughs> I want to meet sort of British people. Where are they? Yeah. So I think it's the similar. And you know, that's, the, that's the, the good thing about both New York and London. And I guess, I guess one of the reasons why they've become art world hubs is because yes. of that multiculturalism, you know. Exactly. Um, and, and so if you had to pick a rural, you know, a, a, something outside the city, what's your favorite kind of rural location?
1: Well, I, I actually, I, I grew up in a very rural part of, of Eastern South Africa. Um, in, a, in a province that's called Mpumalanga, which mm-hmm. which means the the place of the of where the sun rises, um, and so I actually have a, a strong sort of connection to the countryside generally. Um, oh, you've actually grown up
0: in the countryside,
1: in the wilderness I have, yes, yeah, um, and and have very sort of fond memories of of being surrounded by vast sort of stretches of sort of grassland, filled with um I don't know if you know if you're familiar with cosmos flowers, the sort of the pink oh. and white cosmos flowers. Yes. So just sort of. Huge sort of fields of them, um, yeah. and and that really appeals to me. So, so countryside generally is somewhere where I feel really comfortable. Um, yes.
0: the no, cosmos flowers in London tend to be on restaurant tables, but they're really. Yes. Cool. <laughs> but I did know that they. I think that they mainly come from South Africa, don't they? I mean, South i understand Incredible legacy of of flora. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: certainly in terms of their their wildflowers, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, do you kind of get a nostalgia to go back there, or?
1: So yeah, certainly when I go back, I mean I, I I would travel to Johannesburg when I when I normally go back to see my family, but but I would go out into into the countryside as much as possible mm. um, whilst I'm there because um, it just that feels like home really. And if the do you
0: ever get out outside of London, and if so, you know the kind of do you go walking in the countryside or do you tend to do that while you're in the UK?
1: Um, I, I do um, more so recently I think, um, and um, I've. I've because I live sort of southeast London, I've been experiencing more sort of like the Kent countryside, Beautiful. so yeah. um, I've got friends that sort of live out towards Knoll Park, um, Up
0: which is really, the National Trust site, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and I went recently um, to the Folkestone Triennial, so I oh, managed wow. to kind of walk around Folkestone a bit, um, which is a great sort of seaside town, yeah. um, and, and going to Whistable this weekend for the first time. So, Weird.
0: With the Tracy Emin associations. We took some students down to Margate to the new, the relatively new Turner Gallery the other day. Uh we've obviously during COVID, one of the effects on the whole art world is travel. And we on, on the program, the, the art business program, we haven't been able to take students into Europe as we usually would. Uh, so we've been, we went to Hauser and Worth in Somerset. Wonderful, uh, and uh, we're an alumna of the works, Dea. Do you know Dea Vanagon? You probably I do. Know. Yes, yeah, you probably yeah, know her yeah. quite well, and she's head of marketing there. And then we went down to Margate as well, uh, and that. Yeah, really good experiences. So so there there is kind of like, there is an art world outside of London, but generally speaking, it's fairly two-dimensional. You know, you might get one gallery in a town as opposed to several. Um, And and everything is very centred, I think, on on London in the UK. And and what about buildings? Do you have any kind of favourite buildings? Like, you know, you might want to choose one that's contemporary, maybe an older.
1: Um, Well, I think actually probably the building that I'm most... Um, inspired by something that probably is is a little bit timeless in that sense, because um, I'm a huge fan of the, the Catalan architect Gaudi, um, yep. and probably his most um, unique construction, which is the Sagrada Familia in in Barcelona, um, which I managed to visit in in 2017. Um, and um, I think that was that began in Gaudi's lifetime and and is due to complete finally in 2026, which. Um, I think it's probably around the centenary of his death, um, and it's just it's it's the most wonderful building um, I think I've ever been in, and there's there's the, the incredible scale of it, um, the light that comes through the stained glass, and and I think probably regardless of your your religious beliefs, it's the most magical place um, I've never been there, the um, afternoon.
0: I've never been there, unfortunately. Does it is it just Gaudi's architecture? Well, just you know, is it the architecture, or are there things like um, are there other artists involved in the interior decoration and design?
1: Um, good question. I think it's I, th- I think it's the the architecture itself that's just it's so very impressive. I'm I think certainly in terms of in terms of me, I'm sure there are other people that were involved in 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 the interior of it. Yeah, it's it's the architecture of the building that yes. Um, um, I think there's just there's something about Barcelona that really appeals to me. Um, and and there's lots of these buildings around it, um Barcelona, but, but the squad are familiar just in terms of you know there's, there's something quite sort of unique about it.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's certainly on my one of my, my top five lists to, to get to once the pandemic is eases a bit. Barcelona is one of the places I must go to. And yeah. um just thinking in terms of like art and and churches art and religion um you know we we've taken the students recently to cologne after after visiting tfaf in maastricht the art fair in maastricht and the the, the cologne cathedral you probably know has the gerhard richter has a magnificent yes. window that was damaged i think in bombing and uh they got gerhard to design to redesign it and that, i don't know if you've seen
1: that but that is i haven't i haven't had a chance to, to visit cologne yet
0: yeah because it's south facing if you go there and the sun's out at noon He's got lots of different color squares as, you know, part of Richter's practice in his painting. Yeah. And, uh, it literally kind of covers the whole inter- medieval interior of the cathedral with different colors. It's quite magical. So that's worth going to as well. And yeah, then exactly. in, 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 nearer to home, like Chichester Cathedral, uh, it's got a Chagall window. It's got a John Piper kind of altar. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. I always find it quite interesting the way contemporary artists continue to work in this kind of generally Outdates what what many people perceive as an outdated religion, and including people like Damien Hirst. You know, I've seen yeah. Damien Hirst installations inside churches, yeah. which yeah. are actually being used as part of the liturgy. And people wouldn't associate, you know, Damien Hirst with that kind of activity. But a lot of artists are actually involved in that, which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah, but I think yeah. It's, I mean, I suppose art history is 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 probably is is informed by sort of religious beliefs and things to some degree. Yeah absolutely
0: and you know we we're all in the, in the western art historical tradition we're all pretty much brought up on madonnas and children absolutely. and
1: so on yeah
0: um, and 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 that's kind of part of something we might discuss later in, in our conversation about you know we we there's a lot of i wouldn't say pressures but we 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 are kind of proactively trying to become more diverse I was involved in setting up a global art history short program for, for our public programs early in the year, which was a real yeah. challenge. Yeah. But it, it made one deconstruct one's whole kind of art historical education, which is so Western. Um, and in many ways, this, we might discuss this in terms of Masterpiece Art Fair later on, um, sure. you know, there's still a big bias, I think, to the Western, you know, galleries and the Western sort of collecting culture, if you like, which I think is going to change for, and it would be very good for the art world if that changes because yeah. it. You know, it's not going to kind of reduce art business at all. It's going to increase it, if anything. But I think we do have to be more embracing uh, and encouraging of other other nations.
1: And I think I think there, certainly that the yes, I'm sure we'll get onto this. But it it is it is something that that is definitely I think certainly in terms of collector interest is in terms of other sort of demographics and sort of geographical locations is becoming. More, certainly in terms of contemporary arts becoming more, more and more yeah, interesting. So. exactly.
0: And there's this big discussion about uh, to what extent is the art world now global and to what extent is it international, i.e. it's not, you know, people have argued it's not really global because the big collecting nations and the big auction houses are still very Western-centred in spite of the rise of China and so on. So, mm-hmm. um, but we might come back to that. A favourite work of art, Craig. <laughs> That's a difficult one, I know.
1: But Yeah, but there's there's under- so so oh. many. Um, yeah.
0: That um, maybe, maybe at the moment for you, you know, if you had to say now what you're.
1: Yeah, i I I I love photography. Um, and so there's a there's a particular project that that I'm I was drawn to by this South African photographer Mikhail Sabotsky, um, yes. who collaborated with the the British artist Patrick Waterhouse um, on a project that was called Ponte City um, in the in the late two thousands. And now Ponte City probably for South Africans is, is very familiar. It's a, it's a 54 story cylindrical sort of residential tower block. Um, that was, that was built, um, on a large sort of piece of rock in the center and sort of open because it's cylindrical, it's open at the top. Um, and it was completed during probably the 1970s during apartheid in, um, in South Africa. And it's, it's really, it sort of dominated the, the skyline of Johannesburg, which is probably the largest city in, in, in the country throughout my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, during the, the post-apartheid years, it became more integrated in terms of the, in terms of its residents, uh, with pe- people relocating there from the informal settlements and probably became the home from lots of immigrants from out, from other African countries as well. Um, but gradually over the years, since 1994, it became more and more deteriorated. Um, and it, for many people, it began, to, began to be seen as a, as a symbol for, for crime and, and urban decay. Um, mm. and. It's, it's sad because it's a reputation that's not entirely accurate. And I think it's sort of battled to sort, of, sort of shake that um, that, 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 um, that reputation. Um, and, and there's also reports that when the, when the electricity company finally decided to, to cut off the power to the building, obviously the lift stopped working. Um, and, and the residents on the, on the higher floors would then sort of throw their rubbish into the sort of the centre of, sort of this cylindrical tower. And eventually it would accumulate into a pile that was five storeys high.
0: Wow, almost like a contemporary
1: artwork yeah yeah i mean it was it was an incredible sort of um place to be and, and very sort of strange and there's all there's all sorts of sort of urban legends about what actually was in that sort of pile of rubbish eventually <laughs> um, um and then in, in around 2007 developers um came in and, and started a major refurbishment uh but it it got stalled by the financial crisis in 2008 um and it left the building in a very sort of semi-distracted sort of state um with, with tenants in it, some that were never evicted and some that were sort of squatting there. and it was at this time that that um, Mikhail and Patrick started their sort of their their creative collaboration. and they began interviewing all, all the tenants um, and recording um, the, the building through photographs and a collection of kind of debris that they would find in in the in the units. Um, and over a period of five years they documented the building, phot- photographing every doorway, and for every view of, of the window, um, archiving the lives of, of the residents. Um, and it's, it's an incredible project. Um, it's a body of work that um, provides quite a cross-section of, of um, an iconic, iconic South African land, landmark um, and symbolizes quite a lot, I think, of kind of what the, the country's hopes and fears were. Um, and it's, it's been on show, I think, the last time I saw it was um, in Un, Un, Unlimited at Art Basel, um, a few years ago um it's is really a wonderful wonderful project has
0: it been has it been um purchased or bequeathed to any kind of major public galleries or is it still out there in the private
1: um you could buy addition certainly the photographs but in terms of in terms of a large body of work i think it may have been at the national gallery of scotland um so it definitely it tours around um, yes. um and it, it there are bits of it that can be bought commercially and, and by private collectors for mm. sure
0: but um, look out for it and, uh, you know, use a search engine to find out, uh, to, to, to look at some of the images.
1: Absolutely. Um, and so, I, I think for South Africans, it's definitely, I think that's probably what the appeal is, because it's this, it's this building that sort of dominated my, my, um, my childhood and my life.
0: But it's also, so what you're saying is the photographs have an aesthetic, that they, they're, they're really interesting as photographs, but, uh, but also they have this kind of social message, which is familiar all around the world. The, you know, in London, we had the Grenfell Tower, uh, okay. by a disaster so you know this is happening i think all over the world including in 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 kind of you know countries where it really shouldn't be happening the so-called yeah. civilized western countries and so on yeah. um and the the architectural biennale we we started taking our students to and a, a, a lot of the that i remember one year the theme was very much about uh, that building sustainably, but also for poorer countries. Um, you know, like and, and the notion of the mud hut being really denigrated culturally, uh, but actually mud is a fantastic material to build with and highly sustainable and very economical and very warm. Yes. You know, it's insulated. But yeah. kind of culturally speaking, it's kind of really denigrated, obviously. So that it was a fantastic work, thing to encourage, to stimulate our thinking about visual culture and the world and architectural design and so on so yeah. look out for those photographs and what about music I don't know whether you're into music Craig but did you have any kind of
1: paper <laughs> I, I'm a child of the 80s actually so <laughs> so I, I I grew up completely obsessed with the um slightly obs- maybe m- more obscure Norwegian sort of synth pop band Aha <laughs> um and um I actually I was fortunate to see them perform live at the Royal Albert Hall in 2010, um and I think that was part of what was then their sort of their, their world tour before they they split up um and I, I think they did record an album since then um but that was sort of sort of the end of it um
0: is there a favorite song you'd recommend to people listening to this podcast um,
1: there, there are probably two um take on me which is probably one of their greatest hits i think we all know one that will be, yeah we'll be familiar with and maybe um the sun always shines on tv um,
0: <laughs> i won't ask you to sing them <laughs> Um, no, I never no, no. issues are with any of this, but I know that I can't play in the UK. Apparently, you can't actually play even a fragment of music uh, on anything like this unless you've got unless you're licensed. So right. uh, wow. uh, listeners will have to just go and uh, they probably know those tracks anyway. They but I won't really. ask you, I won't ask you to, to, to sing <laughs> please do <don't>. Please don't.
1: <laughs> um, and that probably that was probably a natural segue into kind of my my love of house music. So um, yeah. um, I, I'm a huge fan and have sort of gone to. I think South Africa was an amazing time in the in the nineties of um, so post democracy. There was sort of the rise of the rave generation, and and we got major sort of international DJs like Carl Cox and and Armin van Helden and and Faithless, and all those sorts of that's groups good. that sort of came across. Um, it was just a really wonderful time, and that's uh, yeah. I'm, I've listened to a lot of house music through my from my lifetime.
0: And and was there a kind of e scene in in South Africa, or was that a difficult uh, you know <laughs> drug to? <laughs>
1: no I think that probably was very much part of it, part of um, it as it was here yeah, yeah. Uh, as the borders open so so not only did music come flowing and everything else did as well so
0: um. <laughs> I um uh when I was at school uh we started a, a discotheque it was like a public school in Rochester in Cathedral City in, in in England in Kent in fact that's why I know Kent so well that's where I'm from um and uh, uh a guy called Pete Tong that you may have heard of was yes. um, was 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 in the year below me, and he was our DJ at our discos when he was that's like. That's incredible.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, so, of course, has become one of the one of the world's best, possibly Thanks. world's best known DJ. Yes, uh, so I kind of followed that, although I'm kind of an older generation than you, and the eighties and like the rave scene was not what I was part of. But um, it's kind of followed it because of because of Pete.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's incredible! Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, he's gone on to be sort of a major, a major superstar. In yeah,
0: people. and as combined with like classical music orchestras and 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 so yeah. yeah. Um, so so, how did you get interested in art, Craig? Can you your first memories, is, or is this a long story or an easy story <sighs> to tell? <talk? laughs>
1: I think I've, I've always had an interest in, in the visual arts, um and was really sort of encouraged by my family. So so, my mum is a is a retired fashion designer. Um, and I also was was really lucky to have various mentors in my life whilst growing up, who really encouraged me to sort of follow follow my passion. Um, and so, although I lived on on a farm, um, I would travel through to Johannesburg. It was several hours of drive, but I would travel through to Johannesburg as often as I could um, to visit the art museums um, and the commercial galleries. Goodman Gallery has um, been one of them. Um, Everard Reed, um, and, and spend as much time as as I could. Um, we also, I think. Possibly the the Johannesburg Biennales, which were held in 1995 and 1997, were were hugely inspirational. Um, They were both major international exhibitions um, where contemporary South African art was shown not only to to an international audience at that time, time, unlike previous overseas exhibitions, um, they were also shown to all South Africans um, because it was sort of post-democracy. And um, both Biennales were so importantly exhibited Work of local artists, um, but alongside artists from other African countries and, and other parts of the world. So it really placed South African art within within a global context, um, and that was really inspirational for me at the time.
0: And of course, now we're we're having this um, for for various reasons. We're we we have had um, you know African art fairs appearing one fifty two in London, or was one fifty four one fifty four. 54 50 nations isn't it in Africa yeah uh, and uh and I, I constantly say to the students Africa is a very large place it's got 54 different nations you know with very different cultural backgrounds and artistic <clears throat> backgrounds you know cultures and so on so it's a very very large place and uh so we've seen that growth and obviously with the Black Lives Matter there's been a lot more uh exposure I think of of, of African art art collectors, gallerist critics, and so on. So I'm not certain that was for the right reasons why we have to respond in that way, just because of the Black Lives Matter. But anyway, I think it's it has had an impetus and I've noticed it myself. And, uh, uh, you know, um, I was going to ask you that, that we, we 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 usually get someone to come in a lecture on the South African art market and then we get someone else to come in and talk about, like, particularly the... the, the uh, uh, the, the Mediterranean African coastal markets as it were. And, yeah,
1: sort uh, of North Africa. Sort of I don't
0: know what your feeling is about, you know, is there a big divide between what we might see as the South African art world and the other African art world? Or do you think it's kind of one thing, or do you think we shouldn't look at it like that? Is it a multitude of different types of art?
1: I think that, I think there may have been a divide for a long time in in that South Africa probably had more infrastructure. In terms of the the, the museums um, and and the, the the art schools um, that were in place, um, yeah. but I think I think that has become less so now um, as as sort of other African countries have sort of developed um, their their um, cultural heritage and and sort of placed a value on that um, and and opened more more museums and we've seen more exposure of artists from from other African countries. I think I think that divide has has narrowed um and 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 importantly so i think as well
0: yeah yeah i guess you've got a kind of more traditional western structure obviously historically in south africa compared to the other african nations um but uh, i think you know this is a very it's i think it's going to be really get more and more exciting the work that's coming out of of, of Africa, there are now several galleries in London that that specialise. Um, but I noticed that, uh, you know, I did some work with Jan David Mallet Gallery in in Mayfair this summer. Yes. Uh, they 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 showed um, a, a Ghanaian artist now living in the UK called Koja Marfa, and I did an introduction uh, to his, to his work. And it, 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 you know, it's, it was, it's, it was just such a fun experience and, uh, uh and what an amazing artist. And, uh, you know, it, it always interests me to see, to see stuff that, that looks obviously African and actually it's actually very global at the same time in its, in its kind of visual messages and so on.
1: Yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of, you know, there are certain artists that that obviously have an identity and, and, and. Um, attachment to this or the the country of their heritage, but artists are becoming global now, aren't they? so um yeah,
0: exactly and then you then obviously you moved you moved out of south africa for for um did, i think you did you do your undergraduate degree in south africa I did yes but
1: what, what
0: was um, that, in? that wasn't in history of art, was it
1: it was um, in. It was. It was in. Um, it was a BA um, uh, culture and art. Um, oh, it was culture and art. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there was. I, there was a
0: that. I think I interviewed you many years ago. <laughs> you um, did actually. Yes. After that, you came to London, obviously, to uh, continue, continue your education.
1: Yes. I, I mean, I did. I had a career in South Africa for for twelve years. Um, I had I had a gallery in South Africa um, yes. for twelve years, um, where I was co-director now, of a do space. You talk
0: about, do you want to talk about that? About the gallery. Sure.
1: Sure. Um, so I, um, I actually I joined the gallery. It was called Gallery on the Square. It was a commercial gallery on on Nelson Mandela Square in Johannesburg, um, and um, it was actually I joined as gallery manager, and it became a sort of a twelve year career um, mm. with with the gallery. I worked very closely with the owner, um, and that was on all aspects of the business. So the day to day running of the gallery, the exhibition program, installing exhibitions, liaising directly with with the gallery's artists, and um, sales marketing. And I think we were we were a small team of just of just two, and and we clicked. Um, and I became her sort of business partner, co-director, and shareholder. Um, and so, along with a program of of contemporary South African artists, um, we also supported two development projects: um, the Ardmore Ceramic Studio in the Drakensberg Mountains, and um, the um, Mpula um, Embroidery Project, which was in the Winterfeld. Um, and and um, they were two sort of projects that, that were very close to our hearts in terms of um, elevating sort of craft to that sort of that, that next tier in terms of the visual arts. Um, and then we also did lots of sort of secondary markets. So post-war South African work was on, on the rise, particularly. I think Bonham's had um, a huge, a huge role to play in that in terms of the, um, that market. Um, and, and we also saw lots of works on paper. So um, Jim Dine, David Hockney, Andy Warhol. Girl, Picasso. We even had um, a couple of maquettes from from Lynn Chadwick and and Henry Moore from time. Well, oh,
0: so quite quite international. So there was a
1: huge market for that in South Africa. Um, yeah. Apart from sort of the the international visitors that would come to South Africa, um, it was it was interesting. We would have clients who would fly in from from the UK who would buy David Hockney from us, for instance. Yeah. Um, but would there was a huge market ever, in South Africa.
0: And would they ever see like African artists and buy their work when they were out there? Uh, because you were supporting both local artists and international artists
1: yeah they would um so there was sort of a they would i think one either one or the other would would pull that pull the person into this sort of the gallery so and then it's you know you build a relationship with them and you introduce them to other aspects of it, of your program so whether that be your your contemporary south african or or secondary market in terms of international artists so um yeah the, the, it was just about sort of building relationships with the collectors
0: that's brilliant did did the gallery on the square ever ever move ever do any art fairs for example did it travel or didn't you
1: get go- it, it it didn't i think um certainly in terms of art fairs they were only just starting to sort of take off in south africa yeah. when when i left um
0: we're talking and, millennium, are we
1: yeah so so it's so um so i i moved across in 2010 so so certainly the art Basel's in the and and the freeze fairs and things like that those were all sort of Starting to sort of um become more global in terms of their in terms of their um exhibitors but i think goodman gallery was the only south african gallery that was doing art bars during that time
0: yeah and that that set goes on nicely therefore to the, to your later career in in Lon- in the london art world where i think you began by working for london art fair do you want to I talk did. about how you got into that and what you were doing there
1: yeah it was actually um i actually think it was through through sotheby's institute that that um I was made aware of the, the role coming up at, at London Art Fair. Um, and I joined the team, actually quite a junior role, um, to sort of in terms of um, the, the structure of, of a fair, and, and worked on sort of sales and marketing um, and exhibitor relations, and, and worked very closely with, with the director of London Art Fair, um, which had a particular focus on, on modern British um, and, and contemporary artists. Um, and worked my way from sort of doing sales and marketing up to sort of um, uh, sales manager with with the fair and introduced a lot of sort of interesting sort of new new initiatives. So we we um, we had a sort of younger sort of section subsidized section within the fair called um, our projects, and we introduced a, a curated um, dialogues um, where it was, we brought two younger galleries together um, to would to show a sort of a curated exhibition as part of that um, section of the fair. We had a museum partnership that we launched. I think the first year it was with the Hepworth Wakefield, where they brought. Um, uh, an exhibition of modern British work to the fair, so focusing on on a uh, museum outside of London, so, so bringing yeah, their collection to London. To, yeah. yeah, I um, remember
0: that being one of one of the. You know, I think the whole London Art Fair was a, a wonderful model, and probably drew inspiration from 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 other fairs as well as your own ideas. And, uh, can you? Did you come to Artissima with us?
1: I did. Yeah, yes.
0: I think I, I've always thought Artissima was 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 one of the earliest sort of contemporary fairs to actually you know, bring the community in and not and, and bring culture from the whole of Torino uh, and its Arte Povera tradition into the fair, but also very supportive emerging artists and gallerists and so on. It was one of the first, I think, that was kind of doing that. Uh, and then and then a lot of other fairs began to do it, including, you know, Freeze. But also, I think when you went to London Art Fair, that was quite an early stage, I think, in the development of art fairs to 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 become more educational, more cultured, more supportive of, yeah. of emerging galleries and artists
1: um it, it definitely was and and we saw some sort of you know a lot of those galleries have sort of gone on to i think now now show as part of a sort of freeze so yes um, quite established and
0: um it london art fair um it, it it's it seems to me that it's never quite managed to but maybe maybe its mission and its ambition was never to become a really famous international art fair. But uh, is that unfair of me to say that? That uh, you know, obviously it's sort of slightly in the shadow of other art fairs in London like Freeze and then more recently Masterpiece, which obviously we're going to come onto uh, in yeah. a few minutes time. But I, how do you, where would you position London Art Fair now, Craig? What what are its strengths and weaknesses?
1: I think it's 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 an important fair. I think ter- in terms of its. It's time of year. it's probably it's probably quite you know january is is a quiet time of year. people sort of coming back. um it helps sort of focus the mind and sort of it certainly it launches launches the sort of the fair calendar, I suppose, to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's you know fairs have have limited space and and they they're not going to be able to sort of show show all exhibitors. Um, and so I think it it provides sort of an important sort of um platform for those those exhibitors who aren't able to get into to, to freeze because obviously there's there's lots of artists and lots of galleries with really exciting programs. Um, and so it 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 provides a an opportunity for those galleries to have sort of the same opportunity um, in a cultural city like London. Um, it is it is very well supported by London and London um audience. Yes. And we have some exhibitors that that show at Masterpiece um, that, that show it um at London Art Fair. I think it's also its venue is unique in that um, it's one of the, the, the few sort of permanent exhibition venues that still are within the centre of London, um, um, and so I think they get a very good audience um, as well. That's it's and a very well supported. You're in,
0: you're in quite a kind of uh, interesting area up in up in Islington. Uh, yeah. There. So, um, you know, a lot of regeneration in that area. A lot of Younger people, I guess, and and so it's a sort of perfect venue, really, for that kind of audience in January. Something to do after Christmas, <laughs> after yeah. Celebrations, yeah.
1: Um, and I think I think over time it's probably become. Um, I, there are more international exhibitors that do that fair, um, and and which is exciting for them. And I think they're, they're probably less focused on modern British, although a lot of us sort of our modern British dealers still do that fair uh, for Mars Peace. um But I think it's more sort of now modern and contemporary in terms of its focus, um, but it <laughs> still has. It still has the art project section, which I think is is really exciting, and I think it's got a section where it focuses on a single discipline now called platform. So it, I think it's done um, ceramic and textile as well over the last couple of years.
0: Well, long long may it live, and and then then yeah. you move from there to a, a kind of disruptor art fair, as I saw it. Like that, it, it's it's very hard to sort of. Tell students about this because it hasn't really got a name. It changed its name every year because it changed its n- year name with the the, the the calendar year.
1: Calendar year, when yeah. You,
0: when you went there as gallery development director as Art 16, can you talk a little bit about Art 16 and its precursors and why it eventually stopped? You know, and- yeah.
1: So, so I think the 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 art the art 13, 14, 15, 16. I think it sort of started as probably one of the first certainly in terms of its its focus was was the first global art fair and yep. that it, it very excitingly brought lots of of um galleries and, and and artists from from corners of the world that perhaps collectors hadn't seen in in London um, and so you had um exhibitors from from asia and from africa and and artists from from um, parts of europe that that probably weren't as so popular with collectors um previously um, and that was really exciting and and um, I think the launch of a new a new contemporary fair like that in London, um, people were were intrigued to go and see it. Um, and could you
0: remind us where it was? Its location?
1: It's in it was in Olympia, um, yeah. in in um, big exhibition venue in Olympia, and yeah. um, in Kensington, and um, it yeah it was it was really it was it was great. Um, but I think think slowly as as all art fairs evolved um, and became more global. Um, I think, I think, I mean, it was, it was, also, it was a good time of year for it. I think, you know, February, May, um, um, was, it was a good time for it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. but I think slowly as sort of, as, as more as that sort of that, their focus in terms of kind of what a global fair was, was, was actually, it was all fairs were becoming global um in that way. Um, and so, um, I think it sort of naturally found sort of wound its way, way down in terms of that, um, um and and the the owners were able to focus on other things after that so yeah um, i
0: I was very i was quite disappointed and surprised when it seemed to stop because it was a really exciting event and as you say it really opened up people living in london's eyes to uh, uh, art from all over the world it was it was one of the first i think that i think did that successfully and it was a shame i think when it's when it eventually um you know do you know the reasons can you remind us of the reasons why it? Suddenly decided not to have another edition.
1: I think they just decided that that um, you know that the they would focus on other things. The 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 owners of that sort of um, were were also had Art Central.
0: That's right. Could Kong, you then move which, into you moved I, yeah. to Art Central? Could That's you talk about
1: that? Yeah. So um, I, I that was very exciting for me. So I would not been to to sort of Asia and, and Hong Kong very much, um, and certainly not Hong Kong, and um, got an opportunity to work on on Art Central. Um, and um was was very involved the the director of the fair um stepped down um and i was given the opportunity to sort of really um lead on that um and um spent a lot of time in asia i was sort of there probably every two weeks for for a while um backwards and forwards um and it was a great it was really it was it was a fantastic time um and we, we had a we introduced a sort of a a performance program with, um, that was, I think probably quite sort of cutting edge for, for Hong Kong at the time. Um, and it's a relationship, um, that has continued, um, on with, with the fair. Um, and yeah, it was just, I really enjoyed it. Um, lots of, lots of installations and performance that, that, um, is what I really enjoyed.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, presumably you would see Hong Kong and China and Southeast Asia remaining a very important Powerful part of the international art market in the in the future. Absolutely, I, I, I think some it, people will say, remain there. A- some people, is, some commentators, are saying it might actually take over from the West eventually as a an art market. Um, I mean, I I'm not certain that's the way I see the art world anyway. Of someone taking over, or or you know, uh, but but well, you know, I don't know that they, they. You just hear certain people uh, saying, you know that. It, it, it's going to come. It's going to become the next big New York, London, uh, you know, centre of the art world. I don't know what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly think Hong Kong is is a major centre already. Certainly between between the, the east and and the west. Yes. Um, and and I think probably on par with with London and and um, New York as well.
0: Yeah. No, I would agree with that.
1: I, w- I wouldn't say that one is going to become more important now than necessarily. I think I think regionally each one of those will have will have their their own specific focus.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you moved um, to a slightly different, quite a different kind of work, which was the Apollo magazine, which obviously we've all been reading for many years. It's we've seen it um, changing. I, I I remember getting very excited when they they uh, they began to sort of um, develop uh, the, the the art plector theme. Uh, in particular i don't think that had always been part of apollo it kind of sets itself up a bit kind of maybe maybe they began to aid the editors began to aim at a younger readership um,
1: but are you referring to the 40 under 40 um um focus is that is that what you
0: yeah is that, is that exactly yeah but yeah
1: i think i think that was a great opportunity for them I, um and there wasn't another publication that was sort of looking at that particular group in that sort of interesting way and it gave them a real sort of moment to sort of then sort of focus on sort of contemporary art as well and sort of look at sort of what what collectors were looking at, what sort of the business thinkers were sort of focusing on as well. But within that very sort of that specific sort of age group of of under 40, um, yeah,
0: because it used and, to, you know, when I was your age, <laughs> it used to be kind of quite a traditional magazine, Apollo, hence the name Apollo. You know, classical god of culture and philosophy, etc. And it, it really did change, I think, to being a much more, you know, contemporary, uh, more youthful magazine. Which,
1: yeah, it definitely still has the sort of its traditional roots, and yep. but it's it it covers, I think, you know, probably. Probably quite similar to Masterpiece in that way, and that it doesn't have a dateline. It covers everything, probably right from antiquity through to to contemporary art nowadays. Um, yeah.
0: Um, and you, did, you, also, did you enjoy your time working with Apollo?
1: I did very much, um, and um, it's a great team. Um, Tom Marks, who who is who is the editor, is the editor, was was a great person to work with, and actually we work with him a lot still um, with Masterpiece. Mm -hmm. um he hosts a lot of sort of our our content for us um and it was interesting having not sort of worked in that sort of way with publishing before to sort of get that sort of perspective of things um and i enjoyed it it was it was a great time um
0: and then you moved then back into the art fair world uh with to masterpiece london and uh you know just to just to remind um, our listeners uh, the, the, this had been this very traditional uh, Grosner house art fair it was part of the London season you know primarily aimed at originally aimed of course at the aristocracy um, uh, who would come to London from their country estates in the 1930s and so on and come come to London for the season to go to Chelsea Flower Show, to Wimbledon, to Royal Ascot, everything patronised by the royal family and the Grosvenor. Uh, Art and Antiques Fair was part of that, uh, just off Park Lane obviously, and then it closed down in, I think it was 2009 and I know that certain people who had been um, quite important gallerists at the Grosner House Fair um, then decided to set up a, 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 a new Grosner Fair with Masterpiece that would be much more modern and aimed again at a younger audience with kind of different clientels and so on, but still part of that London scene still open by uh, uh, maybe sometimes quite distant members of the Royal family. But um, uh, I I remember this was a very exciting development and it, it was seen, I think at the time in London to be kind of challenging traditional art fairs, classic modern art fairs, like, like TFAF, the European fine art fair. Um, uh, And, um, and it was, it, it really began it really became part of the zeitgeist for this cross collecting, and it, uh, I know that Masterpiece sort of saw itself as as something that wasn't just going to focus on art anymore, but on a on a wide range of almost like luxury objects. And Craig, I was going to ask you because you you started there in two thousand and nineteen, obviously nearly ten years into its development. Do you, do you think it is still similar its mission to what it was when it started, or do you think things have changed?
1: I think the fair has evolved i think what all say is they evolve um 10 years certainly um it, it the the nature of 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 its content will will have shifted um and i think it's it's probably its focus is is still remains in that in that it's it's provides a, new, a unique platform for cross collecting um and there's no dateline, So it covers, you know, everything from antiquity right through, through to the present, present day. Um, and it's, it's, it's about the objects. It's about, it's about the knowledge. It's about the, the, um, the, the dealers sharing that knowledge. Um, and, and that remains really important because, because our audience is diverse at Masterpiece. So it's, it's, you know, those that are, are serious collectors um, who know what they're looking for, right through to people who who may be coming to the fair for the first time and, and beginning their collecting journey. Um, and so we provide an opportunity um, for people to come and get a broad get a broad range of 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 the art market um, with the fair.
0: Yeah, and it, in in many ways, it is really like an updated version of the Grosvenor fair. In as much as these are people who um, tend to they will tend to go to the fair. They tend to probably have quite a lot of uh, of wealth and but they're looking for the kind of the best of the best in lots of different genres. So, uh, you know, when you look at the history, when I, I've looked back actually at some of the historical catalogs from Grosner, and people were kind of collecting silver and ceramics and, porcel- you know, porcelains as well as, as well as paintings and tapestries and so on. And it was a little bit of everything. And in some ways, I think Masterpieces similar in a kind of modernized way because when you look at the galleries and what they're what they're um focusing on, there's still quite a lot of jewelry galleries, there's quite a lot of silver antiques galleries. Um, and actually um not a huge number of what one might say specific old master galleries. There's a lot of classic, modern, and contemporary there as well. Um, so as you say, it's really kind of I think mirrored the, the this this recent sort of um tendency towards a synchronic view of art. Uh, you know, not worrying too much about the histories of the work, but more about its aesthetic positioning alongside other works of art from other periods and other geographies. So, I think it very much kind of mirrors, um, you know, the cultural fashions in, in in the new millennium. In two thousand and eleven, I interviewed Nicola Winwood and Thomas Wood and Smith, who were founder members of uh, Masterpiece London for the art newspaper. They spoke a lot about life's this new term you know lifestyle experience that we want the art fair to be a lifestyle experience in other words it wasn't just for people who were going to go there to buy art it was for people uh, in London in particular but also from the rest of the world to come to London in the summer when the big contemporary and old master sales are on at Christie's Sotheby's and Bonhams etc right, yeah. it, it's when, is it's when Royal Ascot is is on and Wimbledon's on uh, and to have a they're coming almost like as cultural tourists, a lot of people. So to what extent would you say masterpiece is about the it is about, you know, you go you don't go there for an hour, you go there like for the day and you have lunch. To what extent is it a lifestyle experience? Would you like to talk about some of the aspects of the fair that are are about lifestyle experience?
1: Yeah. So I mean certainly supporting our, our exhibitors is is our primary role in the fair. Um, and, and I suppose, with all leading international fairs, providing an, an overall experience that, that will enhance visitor engagement is is really important because we, we have shifted from from particularly over the last twenty years from a service economy to, to an experience economy, um, and so within Masterpiece um, we we work with partners that certainly in terms of our hospitality um, that will provide will, will will support that that sort of experience, and so. Um, you know we want you to come to masterpiece it's a temporary structure but but it's built in such a way that you you know you, you feel like you're you're with, within a sort of a very permanent permanent building um and we want you to sort of come in and and you know get lost for for a couple of hours in 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 what what our exhibitors are showing and the amazing objects that they're showing i mean we certainly we don't group exhibitors together by discipline um because there is what our chairman likes to call an element of serendipity in terms yeah. of the masterpiece um so you know you'll find that people will come in, coming to see a particular dealer and and end up buying something completely different because they've sort of stumbled across it um, on their on their way, um, and uh, you know it is important that you, we want people to come in. We you know we, we do go we do sort of cross over two weeks between that auction period between Ascot and Wimbledon, um, and you know we want people to come in and and do it have those conversations in their own time and at their own pace. Um, and have lunch, um, and, and for it to be a a wonderful day out. Um, absolutely.
0: Yeah. No. And, and, and also, um, ensuring that there are some quite well-known luxury brand names like the Ivy Harry's bar (laughs) and so on.
1: Yeah. So we, so we work with, with urban Caprice. Um, and so, yes, you know, you have Scott's bars and you have, you have the Ivy, you have, um, Le Caprice, um, and, and, um, Sloan street deli. So yes. So it's part of the, part of the same group. So, and so it gives you that variety of choice as well in terms of, um, and of course, um, Perrier-Jouet with the champagne.
0: <laughs> of course, and it, in many ways, it always reminds me of the, the higher end sort of shopping malls, um, which again deliberately kind of mix up the types of shops, but they're all kind of on a certain level of luxury objects. And there will be a piano bar, and there will be a cham- there'll be a champagne bar, and a pianist playing. I mean, this is this is true even at Westfield in Shepherd's Bush, which is interesting because this. Uh, it's not a it's not a particularly nice area (laughs) when you get off the train at Shepherd's Bush. At the moment, you're in Westfield, a bit like Masterpiece, although it's a marquee, and obviously Masterpiece is in you know where the Chelsea Flower Show is in a very cultured part of London by the River Thames. But still the idea of a tent kind of might put people off. In some ways, I always think Freeze, the contemporary Freeze in particular, feels like, like you are in a kind of big tent rather than in a nice architectural space. Whereas when you could walk into Masterpiece. A bit like the higher end of Westfield, you do feel as though you're in a luxury environment architecturally, and as you say, in a completely different world. Um, yeah. I think, in some ways, I think the European Fine Art Fair in Maastricht does that very well as well, because you, you know, it's in the industrial, it's on the industrial side of the river at Maastricht, not the historical side. And I yeah. think it comes as a great surprise to people when they walk in and they're suddenly in this amazing environment covered with flowers, obviously in Maastricht, yeah. and, it, and you feel as though you're in a different world. And I think that is part of that. Lifestyle experience.
1: Yeah, you you sort of want to take take people somewhere else. Um, So you've you've transformed the space. I mean, a lot of thought goes into sort of the layout, the width of aisles, the architecture, the color palette, um, even the temperature inside the the structure. It needs to be sort of absolutely perfect,
0: is not it? You mustn't build like like too hot or too humid or whatever. That's really really important. Uh, And I was going to ask the obvious question. You know, now we're coming to the end of this. Is um, uh, you know the, the the nature of the pandemic, and I know that it forced masterpieces, most other fairs into going online. Do you want to just talk something about whether you felt that there was anything of the lifestyle experience in the in the in the, in the in-person real fair that was transmitted into the online fair?
1: Well, certainly for us, um, you know, sadly, we we weren't able to have have the, the physical edition um, on on the Royal Hospital site um, over the last two years. Um, and last year we had, um, an online selling platform and talks program. So, um, certainly in terms of knowledge share, um, we produced a large amount of content that, that we then particularly sort of the first year focusing on our exhibitors and and them sharing their knowledge. Um, so we were, we were able to kind of communicate that to our audience and actually, um, we reached an incredible global audience and, and that was really exciting for us. Um, Mm -hmm. and then this year. Um, we, we had an enhanced online edition of the fair, um, but we also had a number of in-person activations. So, so different from last year where, where most of the sort of the galleries and museums were closed this year, we, we took small groups of people, um, to our exhibitor spaces, um, and hosted them. And, and again, we made, we, so we tried to sort of echo the fair in that we would go to sort of an antiquities dealer, then to a contemporary art dealer and then to sort of a jeweler, yeah. um, Yes, yeah, some, that some sort of
0: the students signed up for those and really enjoyed them. And so you're kind of taking small groups still out to have a re- an in-person, a real physical experience, as yeah, it yeah.
1: were. Yeah. And, uh, and, and where, where we could, you know, of course, serving them the, the Pierre jouette champagne as well It's one of our partners.
0: And I know the auction houses, um, certainly some of these have had a similar uh, strategy during the pandemic. So they've, they've turned their offices... In places like Monaco and so on, I don't know whether you knew this into kind of exhibition spaces that are kind of very locally themed. Uh, yes, like the Monaco one is like very, very um, Riviera, uh, white cute space, very Picasso-y, and showing Picasso and so on. Whereas the New York Sotheby's office that they that they remained open, you know, had sneakers and and, and so on. So they were it was very interesting the way it changed. I think the art markets uh, strategies um and, and so looking ahead to presumably next year you you really are hoping that it will be a physical experience again
1: absolutely yes i i think i think physical affairs will go ahead i think there's i think the importance of of um being able to look at artwork in the real will 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 remain yes.
0: um
1: and i think in terms of building those long standing relationships i think that will continue um i think it's important for that but i also think there's there's lots of positives that have come out um from from the the OVRs or the online viewing rooms, as everyone's probably become very accustomed to. Um, There's there's an element of price transparency, which I think has been welcomed by um, the market and the press. I think that that will remain. Um, I think there's there's, there's collaborations between galleries, auction houses, and fairs that probably you wouldn't have seen before the pandemic. And I think that will lead to some exciting initiatives probably in the future. We've already seen the Sotheby's Gallery Network, and the collaboration between Christie's and 154. So I think yeah. we'll see more exciting things like that in terms of your experience of art. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're already planning for, for 2022.
0: So um, and, do, you, do you think the online experience, do you think you will try and repeat? Do you think that would become another dimension of art fairs in the future, such as Masterpiece, that you'll continue to see the importance of the online version as well?
1: I, I think so. I think, I think all art fairs will, will be a hybrid now. Um, of, of physical and online. And I, I think that's because it has given us that, that global reach to international collectors. And I think, mm-hmm. I think collectors have become more comfortable buying online um, yeah. in the last 15 months. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I think it will it still will remain an important element. Um,
0: and, and just coming back um, briefly to something we we touched on earlier in the talk, um, the, the, I would like, I personally, and I'm sure you would agree with me, but whether we can do it or not, um i i would like to see more nations <laughs> more non traditional art collecting nations represented at artfest because when you look at the nationalities people have done studies on art basel for example and i think it's also true of masterpiece uh, that but most of them are still kind of like us and european uh, galleries maybe with the maybe with the old one from Japan, Brazil, and so on, but I just wonder whether art fairs would be a great place to encourage and maybe even sponsor, uh, very, you know, emerging art galleries in, in, in from places like Africa to kind of, you know, or even have a kind of themed section where you're encouraging, like, diversity within the art fair, because that, these things are going to sell to collectors. It's just a case of actually giving them a chance to expose the work there, and it, I, I don't know whether that would be a possibility in the future in kind of making the art, making the art fair a truly, truly global event yeah. in the sense that it's not just the art that's global. It's kind of like the gallery representation, which is more obviously global.
1: Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's not that's not a new um, concept. I think other fairs have done that with specifics sort of geographical focuses in the past. Yes. Um, I think certainly the Armory in New York has done that. Um, yeah, true. Yes. Yeah. Um, but. Um, no, I mean it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought and and something that you know we're always looking at sort of ways to make the fair um, more representative in that in that way because I think people will be interested to see exactly. projects coming yeah, out yeah, of those of yeah, those yeah. geographical locations
0: yep. yeah. because because the kind of like emerging we see it at TFAF as well and the freeze you know trying to support emerging gallerists and artists but many of the galleries do tend to still be from the traditional nations and uh, you know it might be quite nice to kind of like bringing people in who are from, from more on, you know, unusual nations and, and yeah. try and diversify more like that in the future. Um, Craig, uh, just as uh, your, your head of fair development at exhibitors at Masterpiece London, yeah. maybe you could finish by, by giving us, telling us what a day in your life is like, the kind of work <laughs> you do with from when you get up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, that involves oh. you with Masterpiece.
1: Yeah, to- I mean, it's, it's it's quite a it's quite a varied day. Um, yeah. because I work very closely with with the chairman um, of Masterpiece and the managing director, and and so um, I'm involved in, in shaping the content for the fair. Um, and so at the moment, I mean it, it, it it's you know the nature of fairs is that they're they're cyclical and we sort of go through different sort of um, timelines. So at the moment, um, I I oversee all the operational aspects of the fair as well, so including the design and layout of of the fair. So we're currently busy with that at the moment. Um, I also manage the application process uh, for both new and and returning exhibitors. Um, And then already we'll start looking at sort of, so I'm responsible for all the feature installations within the fair. So Masterpiece Presents, which is the large scale uh, immersive uh, installation that we have at the entrance. Um, And we've had um, um, Ivan Navarro, it, it was launched in 2017. So we've had Ivan Navarro installation with Paul Kasman Gallery, um, Marina Bramovic um, yeah, um, and and then Philip de Barlow with with Hauser and Worth in, in Actually, that was my favorite, de Barlow, I the, was. the big the big pom poms. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. Um, yeah. I also the, there's the sculpt curated sculpture series. So we um, draw sculpture from exhibitors within the fair, but then it's curated. Uh, Joe Baring curated it for the first year, um, and there are placed those are large sculptures are placed down the down the, the main sort of public areas of the fair and outside the, the entrance.
0: Yes, I, I remember most notoriously perhaps the Damien Hurst Guild Saint Bartholomew that actually had security men around it.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and then and then a large part of what I do is also is about is around the educational programming um, for the fair. So so at, during the actual fair, I look after the museum symposium, the talks program, and, and all the families day. Um, yeah. But in the lead up to to Masterpiece this year, um, we also launched a, a program of online content called Encountering Beauty Through the Material World. Mm-hmm. Um, where we would focus on a different material each month mm. um, for, for a period of six months, and it was just an interesting way of looking at objects definitely um, from a different perspective. And um, and that's and that program included an online symposium, panel discussions, mm. a series of podcasts, video interviews with artists um, and designer makers, uh, with historians and scholars. Um, we had an object of the month where we had museum directors and curators um, select their favorite work. Um, so there was an incredible amount of, of work that was involved with that, and I, and I was looking after that as well with my colleagues. Um, and then more recently, we've launched um, an Instagram live conversation called Masterpiece in the Museums, where um, we sort of interview the museum director the, and the dealer, and it's, it's also hosted by Tom Marks, which it provides a unique insight into um, the works that were acquired by leading museums from Masterpiece exhibitors at the fair. Um, and so we've done one with the National Gallery of Ireland and um, the Cleveland Museum of Art.
0: Um, and and again, because of COVID, it, 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 suddenly we realised the possibilities because we've all been listening to these things. Um, and, and I've been listening to loads of Instagram live things, which I would never have done before, probably. And so that I think that we will always I think we'll continue to do that as well as coming to the physical fair. Uh, so I, hopefully the future is is beginning to look bright for the, the art world. and um, absolutely Craig it's been fantastic talking to you today and uh, let's hope to see one another at the fair next year and uh, for the listeners look out for the physical masterpiece art fair next July are there any dates yet
1: it's from the 29th of June to the, to the 6th of July next year
0: 29th of June to 6th of July 2022 22. so dates for dares for everyone And if you've never been to Masterpiece, uh, it is a great lifestyle experience, I would say. Whether or not you're going to buy art, you'll see a lot of art and you'll have a great time. So thank you very much, Craig, for being part of this podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks, Craig. Great.